Welcome to the Got Your Six podcast. This podcast brings together current service members and veteran high performers to share their methods, strategies, and ideas delivered in an informative and most importantly, actionable way that'll help you lead yourself and those around you from the battlefield to the boardroom. Coming to you every episode, I'm your host, Tony Nash, and into the breach. Nothing mentioned on this podcast is an endorsement or opinion of the Department of Defense. I got your six, we got your back. Got your six, we got your back. Got your six, we got your back. I got your six. Sixers, what an absolute treat we have for you this week. Luke Scarborough is here. Luke, thank you so much for coming on the Got Your Six podcast. Tony, I, I can't thank you enough for having me on. You've had some incredible guests, so uh, I hope I can just live up to any any level of what they have. We already know this is going to be a loon shot and you're going to raise the bar. Um, <laughs> you are literally a mad scientist. like That is in your job title. Yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of funny because the program is really a, a tongue-in-cheek kind of name that we started, and I'm not actually a scientist or an engineer. We work with tons of scientists and engineers, but we started as kind of a tongue in cheek thing and then people just loved it. And so it continues to spread, but I am experienced in the softest of sciences because uh, my master's is, is in political science. And you were also an Intel instructor in the Navy as well. So you're bringing in those like soft skills into what is usually considered like hard sciences and stuff like that as you look to the future of what's happening inside of the DOD. Yeah, absolutely. I think sometimes the soft skills get a little underrated. I think some of my, you know, success as an Intel analyst and then as a instructor um, came from an ability to try and understand people, to understand that communication varies between people and really seeing the forest for the trees. So like I said, we work with a lot of scientists and there are scientists and engineers who are, you know, have forgotten more than I'll ever know. But uh, sometimes they can get even over-specialized or, you know, they can, they can be the most brilliant uh, munition scientist ever looking at uh, high precision guided munitions and all these great things. But they're not always able to see that force for the trees and see the holistic kind of bigger picture. So I've always told even, even when I was teaching my students and even working with mentoring young analysts now, one of the biggest things I try to tell them is, you know, we're translators. We are translators to take what the army is trying to do, or depending on wh whichever branch you're working with at the time, um, understanding the operational concepts and the constructs and how everything works, and then taking that super technical, scientific, detailed information intelligence, and then making sense of it for our operators, for our warfighters, for our commanders. A specialized generalist, some would say. Yeah, absolutely. What does that look like, especially the communication piece, which I think is so vital, whether it's written, verbal, nonverbal, where do you go to or kind of where do you start when you're talking to an Intel analyst or just anyone in general when it comes to communication? What is like the first thing that you kind of open up with? So I always open up with something that some people kind of consider hippie-ish sometimes, and that's empathy. And so it's always about using empathy to understand where people are coming from. And so when I'm instructing young analysts to, one of the things I say is like, you have to empathize with commanders and you have to empathize with the guys and girls who are boots on the ground and understand their perspective. And then it also stretches even to your adversaries, to your threats. If you don't use empathy 
to try and figure out. It doesn't mean you have to feel it. It doesn't mean you have to agree or condone or anything like that. But if you don't try and understand those varying perspectives, you're going to be blinded and you're only going to see things through your view. And so I, I kind of start with that a lot of times. And then a lot of times also, I try to get to first principles. So what are you trying to achieve from this? Whether, whether it's a quick turn analysis, whether it's a deeper dive analytic product, what are you trying to achieve? Okay, what are we trying to inform? Who are we trying to inform? And it sounds really simple, but sometimes you get on this like linear path going down the, the train is just going and there's momentum and you start to get to, this is the way we've always done it. And you just get so iterative that you never stop to really think, are we doing the right thing? Are we asking the right questions? And so that's where first principles thinking is so important. Um, and I try to, again, preach to analysts, what are we, what are we trying to get out of this? What are we trying to achieve? You know, part of it is beginning with the end in mind, but sometimes you don't want to get, you don't want to start with the end. You want to be creative about it and find an analysis where you're not necessarily coming to preconceived notions. We don't want to, we don't want to get into self-fulfilling prophecies. So it's important to ask again, what are we trying to do here? To be able to get to that point where we are now of asking, like, what are we trying to do here? Where did you not ask that question in order to get to be able to ask that question today? Because there's got to be a moment where you remember and you're like, I needed to ask it here and I didn't. Yeah, there were some times throughout my career and uh, I'll, I'll keep it from getting into the uh, uh, secret squirrel realm. Um, but some areas where it seemed like, again, there was a linear path and this is what everybody expects and this is what we'll see. And then you, you have to go, is that, is that really the direction that it's really happening? Or is it because we got into group talk and we started thinking that this is, this is definitely what's happening. And I think, you know, part of that was if I was looking at it at this big general grand scale, I myself got into the momentum of the global war on ter terrorism, like everybody else. You know, I spent a lot of my career looking at terrorist organizations, um, violent extremist organizations, state sponsors, and really just examining this and thinking like, this is the fight of our lives, right? And, and in many ways, you know, it really was. And it was so defining to a generation of um, folks, not only in the military, but throughout the national security ecosystem. And, you know, I feel like at that time, maybe I had tunnel vision of thinking, this is the way it is. And we're never going to go back to kind of the large scale conflict that we think about, you know, in, in World War II, um, even looking back to the Korean War, which is often way too forgotten. And even the early stages of Vietnam and, and even later, you know, par parts of conventional warfare where I said, oh, you know, we're, we're never going to get to that again. And I think that was a wake up call to me to not be so myopic and not be so focused on this is the only thing that happens or will happen. Um, and you can get really caught in presentism. And, you know, I caution against that even now, you know, I think about China and Russia more than more than anything else right now. But that doesn't mean that we can't find ourselves in conflict once again with a violent non-state actor um, dealing with insurgencies um, and, and these violent movements. And so we, we can't get so caught up that this is the only thing that will happen.
And the other piece too, which I think is very critical, whether you're dealing with future operations and warfare, or you're just trying to like look at your goals for the long term, you can't focus on target fixation. It's really understanding the systems that allow you to get to the future. How do you remain focused on the systems? Is there a system that you're working on that you're an absolute beginner and just trying to understand more? I know those are two questions I kind of rolled <laughs> in there. So I think that um, that's that's definitely two questions. So one one is really looking at um, exactly what you said. Everything is systems, and and we tend to think like in lines of system of systems, which was a big you know analytic push in especially in the two thousands. Right, having a tracker to track all the trackers. A- exactly, and that was that was like informationized warfare. You know, it was like okay, net centric warfare, and we're looking at systems of systems. But what it's really about is not the technical, scientific, mechanical systems, or where we think about you know platforms and and things like that, ships, aircraft, um, and, and even systems in terms of types of militaries and and how they work but rather thinking about systems, confrontation, and integration. So how do these systems work? Not in terms of, again, those physical material things that we think about, but conceptually overall. We get focused analysts so often, you know, you think about the dime spectrum. So for people who don't know, it's diplomatic information, military economic, or you'll hear like the longer Pamizi PT and stuff like that. But we get really focused because it's just human nature. And we're, you know, a lot of us are either, you know, veteran or active duty. We get really focused on that M. Everything becomes the big M. And the truth of the matter is when you look at it, you have to look at the entire operational environment. And there's a whole lot of D, I, and E in that. And so it's it's about expanding that and understanding that systems confrontation and that allows you to kind of see the bigger picture. In terms of like systems, like new systems trying to understand, I really think I struggle sometimes or, you know, it's really new to me trying to understand aspects of the metaverse, cryptocurrency, blockchain, all those all those digital because we're we're really dealing with like a totally different digital world. It's so strange as a domain when you think about it because like absolutely you, you start talking to even senior leaders you know, cyber becomes this um, ethereal kind of out there nascent thing and people don't see it, but it actually really touches into our physical world all the time. So it's something that I'm working on trying to understand. And I think that a lot of times for me, what helps when I'm working on looking at a new system like that or a new concept really is thinking about it in terms of analogies and how do you think about analogous learning is really important to me. And one of my favorite books is uh, David Epstein's Range and how generalists thrive in a specialist world. And one of the things that he points out is that idea of analogies and the ability to take a look at something that is seemingly not all that connected but realizing there are parallels to understand. And so that's why part of the reason like I'm a reading addict is I, I read not just, I, I read plenty of military histories and- Phenomenal reading list. Like you're just constantly dropping them. <laughs> Thank you. But I try to read not only those 
military centric, political centric type books. Um, but I'll read straight up, you know, science fiction, of course, but also regular fiction, read into, you know, I've read books on crows, right? So one of my favorite books is uh, The Gift of Crows. And um, it talks about the ways in which they learn, the ways in which they adapt, the societies that they build. And you can read different books like that and then start to see parallels. And there's there's analogies there to understanding these systems because again this is for someone like me very foreign and new but ironically like generationally it won't matter like my kids will i got uh two boys eight and eleven and they're gonna they're gonna you know act like i'm the old man that can't find the mute button on my phone what is the analogy that you find yourself using the most these days i think the analogy i find myself using the most and maybe to my peril, usually related to football. I think it's just because I'm a football fanatic. And um, so I, I start to look at like how teams are built, how they rise and ascend, how they fall, and different strategies that are used. I think probably because I've looked a lot in the last year and, and couple of years, and you've seen someone in terms of talent management and really people, because no matter what, you know, the technology changes the character of warfare. But at the heart of it is always the people. And so I think that teams, and and I'll look at other sports too as well, but I just think that team building and how you employ talent and how you find talent, all that stuff is like crazy interesting to me. And so I I always kind of compare those things. Like you said, from going from a draft concept all the way to winning a championship and then having to recycle and do it all over again, uh, especially as you look, like you were saying, in operations and warfare, where have your beliefs or understanding of the future of operations and warfare shifted because you're able to apply these different analogies, which start to then do these like small atomic changes to the way you approach? Yeah, I think that one of the big changes in my own thinking and viewpoints, I think when I first, I first started in the futures game in 2015. So that's, um, and, and to an extent when you're an Intel analyst, you're always looking at futures, but I came into it not knowing anything about futures and, um, started looking at it and I was so enamored with everything that was happening. And it felt like this is a pivotal moment, um, especially in technology. And I think I was probably at the time, like a lot of people overly optimistic about what could be done with artificial intelligence, machine learning, autonomy, especially, which I I still am, you know, a believer in in some aspects of that. And I I never bought into the fairy dust of it all. But I felt like by 2030, how many operators on the ground are we really going to need? That it's, it's becoming, how much can we actually automate? Because we want robotics to do everything that's dull, dirty, dangerous, right? And we should be able to take the human out of this in in so many areas. And I still believe there are definitely critical points where we can do that and we can make ourselves so much better. But just seeing what has not come to fruition in terms of all the all the techno-optimist promises, what has occurred, I, I think Russia and Ukraine was obviously very eye-opening. And you realize that even though I think those things are definitely going to advance and we're going to we're going to look at increased levels of robotization, autonomy and and kind of getting mixed formations and and things like that but I started to realize with that again that there was so much still in terms of people 
It was always people, no matter what, were always at the heart of it. And you see it right now in Russia, Ukraine, right? So you see Ukrainian, you know, forces. And, and a lot of people obviously were so surprised that, you know, the Ukrainians were were beating back the Russians and, you know, obviously just retook Kherson and, you know, great on them, you know, Slava, Ukraine, all the way. Absolutely. And people were surprised, but I, I wouldn't say I was, you know, wholly surprised by that because... I had studied and, and talked to some Ukrainian warfighters and they had changed. And now, so they've adopted some technologies and we've seen them employ high Mars and systems like that. They've been supplied to great effect. But the biggest thing was they completely revitalized from 2014 and 15, completely revitalized their training, their leadership. That was what matters. And that, that, that's been you know, while material certainly matters and logistics certainly matters and national will cannot be understated, but the people and their ability, the, the Ukrainian warfighters have vastly outperformed Russians who are, you know, especially when you talk conscripts, you know, they have a, they have all of a year of rotation through that system. So people still matter so much. And so the analogy is like, I've looked at football just, you know, 10 years ago, five years ago, the push for analytics was huge, right? Like, oh, we got to use analytics and the smartest guys know when to go, you know, the stats tell them to go for it on, um, you know, fourth and two, whatever. And that exists. And I think you have to use that stuff, but the best teams still are the ones with the best people and not just the talent, but how they utilize them, how they understand and how they lead. And that's, that's the difference right now, because you can be the smartest whiz kid when it comes to, you know, how to design plays, how to do all this stuff. But if you can't lead people and you can't cultivate talent, then you're going to end up, and I apologize to any Raiders fans out there, but a, a guy like Josh McDaniels has been looked at as, you know, an offensive genius. Well, that hasn't amounted to anything because they don't know how to properly utilize, motivate, and lead people. Right. Jeff Saturday goes in, runs a very simple game plan. There you go. Let talent play talent using the P variable, right, of people. And what's fascinating about that is, I really want to focus in on the phase change. And since we're talking analogies, right? Look at like ice, right? Where you have water, gas, you know, in different forms at 29, 28, 30, 31 degrees Fahrenheit, nothing. 32, it starts to melt. So you essentially are living professionally as you look at this stuff at those phase changes and looking at the different changes that can occur uh, under stress and under adversity. Absolutely. And it's very interesting to look at because it'll never be the same again meaning you you can look at it and you know people say hindsight is 2020 and it is but you can't then look at the past and look at past experience and then just replicate that so you can't say well this didn't work last time we're going to adjust and you know it'll definitely work if we don't do what we did before or even worse is to look at success and just assume that doing the same thing is going to get those successful results again, because that's not how it works. And sometimes success can be more fortuitous than people realize. It can be more to chance than people want to even admit. Another one of my favorite books, it was on Verrall's Think Like a Rocket Scientist. And beautiful book. Love it. And, and one of the things that they've tried to do at NASA is really realize that 
just because something was successful doesn't mean that that's going to happen in the future because there was avenues or, or happenstance that could have occurred that would have led to dramatically worse results. Success can be extremely dangerous. I'm really, uh, you know, sometimes a, a movie nerd as well. And one of my favorites has always been, because I think about this again, analogies, but I think about this a lot with the U.S. And um, it's in the, uh, the Dark Knight Rises, one of my favorites, where Bane is fighting Batman. And uh, he grabs his fist and he says, uh, peace has cost you your strength. Victory has defeated you. And in I always think about that analogy with the United States because, um, and, and the United States military and specifically, because we were so used to in the sense of succeeding, especially since the 91 Gulf War and this idea that, okay, yes, we, you know, we had our struggles in Iraq and Afghanistan, and you can look at, you know, the disparity between policy, strategy, operations on the ground and there's so many other factors but we always had the idea that okay but against a nation state toe-to-toe nobody's ever going to beat us because you know we're just so overly capable if we really put all of our all of our effort into that there's no way we could be stopped and i think that's you know that's a fallacy that's we we can't get comfortable with the idea that we've been victorious against state actors in the past so it'll be no problem where his victory for you ultimately led to a defeat that then you had to kind of look around and then ultimately propel you to victory. Yeah, I think um, I'll, I'll give kind of a personal anecdote. So I've been coaching you soccer for the last six years and um, I have been lucky enough to have some just, fin- I've always had phenomenal kids. I love working with them and um, I had I had never had a losing season before, and we had had teams that just absolutely dominated. And um, I got used to the idea that I could just cycle through, and I knew I knew how to you know set them up. I knew how to train them. I knew how to condition them, and we would just roll to another great season. And this was the worst season I've ever had. Um, and everything just kind of imploded. And it, I think part of it was, you know, moved up from uh, U10 to U13 and the field expanded and the players expanded. And you had this wide age gap between like my kid who's 11 and like, you know, uh, four foot nothing to like kids that are 13 and like my height. And so um, I really felt like things kind of just collapsed and I started to doubt myself as well of, you know, do these kids even like playing for me right now, which is to me important because I want them to enjoy it. Not just, you know, it's not just a grind. It's, it's soccer. I want them to have fun um, and and learn a love of the sport. And um, I really had to reevaluate the ways I was doing things, who I was listening to, because I think I was, too caught up in how I always did things and not listening to changing things up. And when I started to listen midway through the season or more midway through the season, we started to have a lot more success and it wasn't, you know, the winds didn't pile up, but we saw this improvement in this gel and we saw them start to enjoy it so much more. And by the end of it, I was like, man, I wish I had six more games because we would just knock it out of the park. But it was just a learning experience to realize, 
you know, sometimes even though you've been so successful in some areas, um, sometimes it just takes falling flat on your face to realize that you have to adjust your viewpoint. And again, like it's all about listening to people. Let's talk about you one more time as we kind of wrap up. David Epstein would be proud of us for going range, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. How have you been able to provide empathy to yourself so you're better today than yesterday? Empathy to myself about myself or uh, others? Both. Yeah, I think um, I have a lot of hard time with giving myself grace in terms of uh, if I mess something up or you know make a mistake or I'm just not able to finish everything that I wanted to. I tend to maybe set my my goals too high sometimes, but I feel like if you don't if you don't set it that high, then you'll never you know know how how really far you can get. And um, I tend to beat myself up pretty bad over some of that stuff sometimes. And um, I started looking at it, and um, there was a, a great book that I I posted about, and it was I think it was called Keeping House While drowning. And, uh, the idea is like, um, how do you, you know, basically just get through the, the daily grinds of life when things are, are just not going how you want it to. And how do you just maintain and, and be okay with that? And, you know, I, I read the book because I wanted to understand how to be more efficient in my daily life and, and to, maybe develop a better system for how to, how to achieve things. Um, and I'm talking daily things like cleaning the house, like, uh, making sure the car, you know, the truck's oils change and getting to that stuff. And, um, the author noted, like, think about your self-talk and think about, would you say this to even somebody you didn't like? Would you say the things that you say to yourself? you know, I'm a piece of shit because I didn't finish this aspect of it, you know, some task. Would you say that to anybody else, especially a loved one? So why are you saying it to yourself? So I think I had to learn to empathize with myself and say, you know what, it's okay. Sometimes things just don't go exactly as planned. The book was way less about systems than I thought. And it was more about coping with yourself and, and really saying, uh, one of the interesting things she really said was sometimes you can say it is okay to be human. And it sounds like really simple, but you can say that and really recognize that it's okay to be human and make mistakes and, you know, not, not again, achieve everything that you try to do all the time. And then when it comes to empathizing with other people, again, I kind of get back to reading is a big part of it because, it allows me to, you know, I've always said like, I can only live my life in terms of, you know, cisgender, heterosexual, white male who went up through DOD. That's it. I, I can't, um, you know, I can't live any other life, but through reading, I can try to experience and understand at least what other people are going through who are from different backgrounds, whether it's ethnically gender, um, socioeconomic, you know, just understanding people is so important. And then a big part of it to me is listening because I think that everybody has a story to tell because sometimes, you know, we get caught up and, and I have to watch it myself. I'm a jabber jaws. You hear it right now. Like I'm a chatterbox and I have to watch. We could talk for hours. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And I have to watch and make sure that I'm not that I'm actually actively listening to people and not just waiting for my turn to talk. 
And so I've, I've worked a lot on active listening because everybody from, you know, sometimes you get people that get overly focused on hero worship or a certain, a certain, um, famous figure that they, you know, study and identify with and everything they say is just so impactful and insightful. In reality, sometimes I just want to talk to the janitor. Sometimes I want to, I want to talk to the person driving my Uber, um, because they have such an amazing experience to tell me about. And, to understand where they're coming from helps me get a wider perspective. And if I don't listen and I don't pay attention to that, then I can't build that empathy and I'm going to be blind, not just in analysis, but I think in general, in life, I want to know what other people are thinking, feeling, and experiencing so that we can get to, again, sounds very hippie-like, but get to that higher plane together because, um, you know, it's uh, all a rising tide, you know, brings up all ships. And so that's, that's what I'm looking for is I want to, I want to know what they're experiencing and let's find common ground. And that's how you get things done because um, empathy has been, you know, my biggest key to networking because I'm not talking to people just to see what I can get out of them. I'm talking to them because I want to see what they need. What do they want? You know, what are they striving for? And let's do that together. Absolutely. And as you talk about networking, where can people go to find out more about not only what you're doing, but more about the Mad Scientist Initiative and everything else? Yeah. So, um, Anybody can find me on LinkedIn. <laughs> Just look for Luke Shabro. Um, I'm probably far too active on there. And then, um, but for MadSci, we do have an official LinkedIn page. So just look Army Mad Scientist, but also at Army Mad Sci for Twitter and Instagram. And then you can check out the blog, the Mad Scientist Laboratory. So it's madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. And the big thing is we want to hear from everybody. That's um, one of the things I love about working on this program is that we are trying to engage everybody and harness the intellect of the nation. Um, we always say we're not a community of interest, we're not a community of practice, we're a community of action. And so we want people to get involved because, again, you know, we want to hear those perspectives. Matt Sai Lab, the blog, over half of those submissions that we publish are guest submissions because it's not about hearing ourselves talk. It's about getting all those varying ideas and divergent ideas in and we appreciate you today, Luke, allowing us to hear your story as you shared it with us, your tactics, your methods, your strategies, and most importantly, thanks for having our six. Oh, thanks, Tony. I can't, can't thank you enough again. I love the podcast. You've had some incredible guests, so just honored to be among them all. Hey, Sixers. Did you know the Got Your Six podcast is now streaming every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern and Saturdays at 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. Eastern on Wreaths Across America Radio, available on the iHeartRadio app, the Audacity app, and the TuneIn app. Just search the word wreath. You got something out of this? Be your battle buddy. Share with a friend, pass it along. If you're listening on Apple or Spotify, make sure you leave us a review and give us as many stars as you think we warrant because we love what we do here at the Gotcha Six Podcast. We're always adapting and evolving this podcast because of you, the Sixers. And if you're listening on Spotify, hit that follow button. You'll never miss an episode when we drop new ones every Monday. I don't know what you've been told, Sixers. 
But the lawyers would like us to remind you that the views, opinions, and comments expressed on the Gotcha 6 podcast are solely those of the hosts or guests to include current and previous Department of Defense employees and should in no way be considered the opinions of or endorsements on behalf of the Department of Defense or any of its components, divisions, contractors, or other current and previous staff members.